From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hi, and welcome to the show. My name is Charlie Blay, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. I'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging that Terraforma is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta. We are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. While you listen to this week's episode, consider your connections to this land, the connections of those that came before you, and the connections of those that will come after. This week, we bring you an interview with longtime environmental activist Severne Cullis Suzuki. But before we get to that story, here are this week's headlines. In our first headline, we highlight an interesting and unique use for carbon capture right here in Alberta. All Things Jill, a cosmetics company, is making soap using potash recovered from industrial furnaces and boilers. Clean02, a Calgary startup, turns CO2 emissions into potash, which is then used for soap, detergents, and other products. Potash soap is one of many new products that are seeking to use carbon captured for manufacturing and activities. Numerous companies are interested in carbon capture and sequestration, a method of preventing carbon emissions by trapping CO2 and typically storing it in underground reservoirs. But carbon capture and utilization is a process that uses collected carbon for other products, creating a market for captured carbon. Clean02 estimates their units, which convert carbon dioxide to potash, have payback periods from four to five years, providing a way to reduce carbon emissions economically. This function of carbon capture and utilization is a chance to produce soap that cleans the air as well. Speaking of innovative technology to address the climate crisis, a new geothermal project in central Alberta is demonstrating the potential for geothermal energy generation. Geothermal energy involves using Earth's heat to produce power. Geothermal is a renewable source and the generation process does not generate carbon emissions. This new project, labeled the Everloop, uses a novel technology where two wells are drilled kilometers away from each other. Drilling then turns to be parallel to the ground, connecting the two wells at the bottom. This U-shaped loop allows for electricity production. A fluid is circulated through the wells to collect the heat, which is then used to produce power. According to the CEO of Evro Technologies, the project developer, the energy source is also scalable. Geothermal has large advantages in Alberta. The province has natural feasibility for electricity generation. The underground infrastructure has fewer visual intrusions. And finally, Alberta has an experienced drilling industry and a wealth of subsurface information from oil and gas extraction activity. This $10 million project is currently under development, co-funded by Alberta Innovates and Emissions Reduction Alberta. The pilot project is anticipated to be working by the end of the year. After being nearly wiped out in the last century, the South Atlantic humpback whale population has recovered substantially. 
With an estimated population of just over 400 in the 1950s, these whales were near extinction. Recent studies show a recovery, with the population estimated to be 25,000, nearly the estimate on the population prior to the emergence of whaling activities in the 1700s. There are just 16 humpback whale populations in the world, and four of them are endangered. The global population of humpback whales saw declines as whaling activities became common. The population has rebounded since whaling activities were banned in the 1970s. While whaling is now banned, humans remain significant threats to whales due to collisions with ships and getting entangled in fishing nets. The heartwarming story of the recovery of the global humpback whale population demonstrates the ability of international efforts to effectively address an environmental issue. United international efforts were crucial to protect these whales, showing how working together can reach real results. Collective efforts are also crucial for climate action. The climate crisis will have significant impacts on whale populations as communities migrate to follow krill, the main food source for whales. In a statement from the Alberta Electric System Operator, the organization revealed a new forecast predicting that Alberta will not meet the target of increasing the share of renewable energy generation capacity to 30% by 2030. In their forecast, the AESO predicts renewable capacity will reach 19% in the next 11 years, increasing 9% over present day. The 30% by 2030 target was set by the former NDP government, who also created the Renewable Electricity Program. As part of the program, three competitive auctions were held for renewable projects. The victors were given a fixed-rate guarantee for the sale of electricity produced by a project at a given price. If the market price was below the fixed price, the government would pay the difference. But if the market price exceeded the guarantee, then the government would be paid the difference. This program was able to successfully solicit the cheapest prices for renewable electricity in Canada. Plans to hold the fourth auction this year were scrapped by the UCP government. An AESO spokesperson stated that this policy shift was one of the reasons the forecast was reduced. While the AESO prediction might sound discouraging for Alberta's low carbon transition, renewable projects are still being developed, even without the auction program. Solar and wind technologies are especially becoming cheaper and cheaper, becoming competitive with fossil fuel energy sources. The market viability for renewables is further supported by efforts by companies and governments to procure a certain amount of their power from renewables to meet their own carbon reduction targets. With increasing technological efficiency and market support, Alberta's energy future could still be more renewable than currently anticipated. Severne Cullis Suzuki has been an environmental activist, speaker, and author in the public eye since the age of 12, when she addressed world leaders at the Rio Summit in 1992 about the climate crisis. Since then, her activism has taken her to many stages globally to speak to the continuing issues we're facing and the need to encourage and uplift youth to be part of the movement for change. 
With the recent public and media response to the speech by 16-year-old Swedish environmental activist Greta Thunberg at the UN Climate Action Summit in New York, people were reminded of Severn's address 27 years ago. Guest contributor and former terror informer Natalie Rawat spoke to Severn over the phone about her experience in Rio 27 years ago, how to engage with our elected leaders, and her career evolution. that our next segment was recorded on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I'm only a child, and I don't have all the solutions. But I know, I want you to realize, neither do you. You don't know how to fix the holes in our ozone layer. You don't know how to bring the salmon back up an, a dead stream. You don't know how to bring back an animal now extinct. And you can't bring back the forest that once grew where there is now a desert. If you don't know how to fix it, please stop breaking it. That was 12-year-old Severn Kalas Suzuki addressing world leaders at the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992. Almost 30 years later, we've seen many youth activists on public platforms fighting for climate justice among several other issues that we're facing globally. I, like many others, remembered Severn's address when we recently watched Greta Thunberg at the United Nations Climate Action Summit in New York, who spoke very passionately and with the same fervor about the urgency of change. I had the opportunity to speak with Severn five days before the Canadian federal elections about her experience in comparison to Greta's, the impact of youth activism, her career evolution, and how we engage with our elected leaders moving forward. For our listeners, I wanted to let them know that I wanted to speak to you after seeing the impact of Greta Thunberg globally and her address. And I wanted to ask you about your experience compared to hers and the current relationship between the media and politics, how you see a comparison and a difference or what you were saying then? Every generation, I think, has its, um, you know, intense uh, crises and moments where I think the young people are called to to take a stand. And so I see a lot of parallels between today and when I was a young person almost 30 years ago. Um, in fact, I think I see a real parallel between the interest in the environment and our ecosystems back then in the, in the 80s and early 90s and today. That issue in particular was very high in the public eye back then, and it's, it has taken a generation for it to rise back to the surface. Um, I, think, I think that Greta is an incredible young warrior and it's you know she she's seen as a phenomenon, but indeed, if you look at any revolution, 
it's always been the young people at the forefront. It's always been the young people who are calling out and saying, the emperor has no clothes. It's been the young people who are able to be the real truth tellers. So I think she follows a great tradition, and uh, I'm proud to be part of that tradition myself. I do see there is a huge difference, which is in the tools of activism, the tools of the revolution, and that's you know the, the most obvious one is in the internet and social media. It's an incredibly different arena that today's activists are dealing with, and um, I think that's that's hugely different. How do you feel about people actually referring to her as a celebrity rather than rather than an activist? It seems to be what the media loves to do, and um, perhaps you know what our what our human nature tends towards, which is looking at characters and personalities and stories um, rather than the issues at hand. So, on the one hand, you know it's quite um, sometimes amusing and sometimes a bit horrifying how people are. Um, looking at her character and her as um, as almost like this cartoon or, or personality or celebrity rather than listening to what she's actually saying. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have so many celebrities in uh, that are famous among everybody that are doing, you know, are not have no message at all. So I'd rather her be a celebrity than <laughs> I'm not even going to name some of the other yep. celebrities <laughs> I can think of. <laughs> Yes, that makes sense. Um, I have to ask because we're five days away from our federal election. One of the big campaign promises that was broken by the Liberals was of electoral reform and proportional representation. Uh, with this election, which party promises do you think we should be paying attention to? And how do you think as Canadians we can be better at holding our elected officials accountable on delivering campaign promises? Well, thank you for bringing up the broken promise of electoral reform because I'm still so upset about this. The fact that Trudeau got so many people, especially young people, to campaign on his behalf. He got people to hold their noses and vote liberal when they you know, don't typically vote for that party on the promise that he would bring electoral reform and then promptly broke that promise. I mean, I can't get over that because I don't understand how this is allowed. How is this? How is this perfectly legal that we can just that that our politicians, when they're on the campaign trail and even beyond, just lie? Um, I I think that it's part of this greater problem, which is a crisis in our human governance. We all believe in this thing called democracy, but how our democracies are playing out is not fair. It is not providing opportunity for genuine leadership. Genuine leadership is not always popular. And right now we have people who are just in a popularity context saying whatever they want to try to gain more popularity points. And the the terms of office are so short that, you know, you have your campaign period, you get elected, you're just you know, have a year or two to kind of get going and get into the job, and then it's almost like it's election time again. So we have a, such a, a short-term mindset. Um, another pol- uh, political promise that's being made by the Liberals is, you know, to get to zero emissions by 2050. That is so far away politically. I mean, how many different prime ministers are we going to have before then? How can anyone in this current governance structure make any promises for the long term? They can't. So we really have to try to figure out what is the problem in our governance structure and how are we going to engage 
in a political and governance system that is going to actually allow for real leadership and getting us through the really hard path we're going to have to have to make in order for our future to be viable. And I, I think a lot of people find it maybe difficult to really see their impact on a more federal level. And what are your thoughts on engaging on a macro level with your with the officials in your writing? I think it's important um, to keep engaging with our elected leaders, whether they are at the federal level or um, or even a but well at the federal level as MPs. But I think where I've actually felt a more empowered relationship is at the municipal level. At the municipal level is where we're seeing action on climate change, you know, throughout North America, which is significant because Canada and um, the U.S. are serious uh, laggards when it comes to climate change. You know, you look at um, our national politicians on climate change and it's absolutely terrible we're just not taking any leadership but on a municipal level that what mayors are doing in spite of their um national leaders that's where real action is happening that's where there's inspiration so i think there's a real opportunity for us as citizens to engage directly with our our city council members and with our mayors um that's where i feel that we're going to actually see some accountability it's interesting you talk about feeling inspired, which is one of the things that, you know, for me, my biggest motivation has actually been listening to elders in the community and more Indigenous voices to keep me um, engaged as well as to give me tools maybe in how to speak to things in a different way. How do you think we can actually improve our consultation with elders during not only election time, but in general, um, and not only environmentally, but just to shape you know, where we're going in Canada? I think that the conversation in Canada with our Indigenous nations has really shifted in the last few years. I remember, you know, even less than 10 years ago doing land acknowledgements and, you know, that was a totally radical thing, you know, going to, um, you know, very progressive events and yet people would have no idea who the indigenous nation um, whose territory they were on was. Um, so I think the, the visibility and the profile of the issues really is important. You know, I, I think a lot of people are anxious to, to do more, and that's absolutely fantastic. But we are definitely in a different era than we were 10 years ago. We have to continue that. I think that uh, there's definitely way more voices of Indigenous people in the media, and that is really helpful. It's, it, it makes a huge difference in the perception of the Indigenous community, and that's one way I think the media um, has done uh, a good job, which is to, to give more visibility of these um, voices and the stories of Indigenous people. Um, Indigenous people in Canada comprise 4% of the population. But if you listen to the CBC, for example, you you hear a lot more Indigenous stories than just 4%. And that's great. That's as it should be because they are the original Canadians. <laughs> they're the they're people with a huge um, with a huge investment in this place, and they're the people that we have to thank for the bounty that we all enjoy today. So I think raising the visibility is really important and educating ourselves. A lot of Canadians have never met an Indigenous person, and 
part of the reason is because of the segregation of, of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, um, the fact that Indigenous people live on reserves. And I think that, you know, individual Canadians who are interested in learning more about the history have to work at it. They have to work at learning about, you know, we can start with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's findings, um, start with learning about um, residential schools, that history, and then start deepening your relationship with the people of the land on who, where you live. That's a really important piece. You know, I, I think that there we've changed from a narrative that was about making invisible Indigenous people. We've changed from that narrative, and now we have to try to figure out what it means to have a relationship with people who are still here. That's why I find it really curious also to see your sort of evolution, your educational career and where you're at right now. Can you actually tell me a little bit about your language research and revitalization on Haida Gwaii that you're pursuing right now and how you also came to that point where you sort of shifted gears a little bit? I was really lucky to be raised in a family that um, spent a lot of time outdoors, um, you know, camping and fishing and spending time on the beach and I'm also really fortunate that they were always really engaged with indigenous peoples on the coast and beyond. And this was because they're environmental they were environmental activists. They were engaging with issues of protection of ecosystems. And when you're dealing with the environment, when you're dealing with the earth, you're dealing with land. And so the people that they met who were engaged on the front lines in protecting lands and ecosystems were indigenous people. They were the people who live in the Stein Valley, um, people who live on Haida Gwaii, where I currently live. These were some of the communities that my parents started engage with, engaging with and working shoulder to shoulder with, working to save and protect these ecosystems. And we really just had a shared um, set of values. We met people who, who welcomed us and invited us in as family. So my childhood and my youth was really characterized by, you know, of course, going to school in the mainstream way in Vancouver, but also traveling up the co- up the coast with my family, visiting Haida Gwaii, Bella Bella, Alert Bay for potlatches, for feasts, for funerals, for for events, community events. And when I was 17 or 16, I was adopted um, into the Haida Nation, into the Wolf Raven Clan of Tanu. So I was given a place, uh, a place culturally to be part of the community. And so I've always really been influenced by Indigenous people, especially Indigenous women who have, you know, taken me under their wing and elders. At the same time, I was also going to school and I started university. I got a degree in biology. Uh, then I got a degree in um, ethnoecology, which is looking at um, ecology and how indigenous people see ecology and manage natural resources. And so I really started to see how these two sides of these two ways of knowing really actually could be complementary. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized that, you know, as we humans are trying to figure out the best way of managing our resources or living in this world, we can now, in a modern world, we can draw on the scientific side as well as the very old, long-standing indigenous knowledge side. And the two can really work together. 
there's examples up and down the coast of BC that show that have you know young indigenous people who are getting trained in both methods and really able to use science and statistics and testing in order to be able to monitor and look after their natural resources but they are guided by indigenous values so it's really kind of been an organic kind of evolution of my educational career um and finally after you know doing ethnoecology and working with elders as well as scientists i started to realize that I would never fully understand the depth of traditional ecological knowledge um, without understanding, or sorry, speaking the language where that knowledge came from. There is so much ecological knowledge that is embedded directly in the language. So, for example, the word for eelgrass, which was a species of flowering plant that I was studying, the the Kwakwala word for eelgrass is tsaatsayim, and tsa means the tide. So embedded in the in the in the species name is the word for tide. And this is partially because Zazayam, the eelgrass, is used to tell the tide. And it shows and it's part of the tide. When you know you can tell what kind of tide is happening by looking at the eelgrass, if you know that it's spread straight out and it's it's flowing, the tide is really running and you can tell which direction if it's flowing in or out depending on the direction of the eelgrass. So you see these embedded relationships between humans and ecosystems and that knowledge that is really embedded in language. And if we don't have those indigenous languages, there is so much knowledge that will be lost. There is so much straight-up data that we will not have access to anymore. So I was already attuned to these issues, um, and then I I got married. I married a, a Haida man whose passion was learning Haida. His language that he had not grown up speaking and I learned about Haida language revitalization so we had children and we've in, we've taken on the the task of learning Haida ourselves and teaching it to our kids and eventually um I I realized I really needed more more knowledge in this area so I started a PhD and I'm doing my um dissertation on indigenous language revitalization looking at our family project of Haida language learning. That was Natalie Rewat speaking with Severne Cullis Suzuki about her experience as a youth activist, political engagement, and Haida language revitalization as part of her educational evolution. To learn more about Severne's work, you can head to her website at www.severnecullissuzuki.com. Thank you to our volunteers, Sonic Patel, Charlotte Thomason, Elizabeth Dowdell, and Hannah Cunningham for creating this week's episode. Terra Informa is entirely volunteer-run, and we survive because of generous donations to our host studio, CJSR 88.5 FM. Consider a donation to your local radio station to keep stories like this on the air. I've been your host, Charlie Blay. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch us next week right here on Terra Informa.